This morning we find ourselves in James chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 13. In recent weeks, my wife and I have developed an increasing appreciation for the hospital system here in Wisconsin. When our four-year-old was diagnosed with diabetes just a matter of weeks ago, we had no idea the resources and the professionals that are out there. When we arrived in an emergency room on a Friday evening, there were people that were trained and skilled to greet us, to take some information about us, and to usher us into a comfortable room where they sought to help with our practical needs, setting our minds at ease, assuring us that things would be okay, and then doing a, a helpful assessment on our little boy. And in the days that followed, they provided some wonderful training. They didn't just download a lifetime of information on us in one hour. Rather, they knew that it would take a while for us to learn these things. So they've given it to us in installments. They've given it to us just to the basics. Hey, before you leave the hospital... You're going to have to be able to give your son a blood test and be able to offer a few shots. And these are the things that you're going to have to learn in your first installment of training. And then we want you to come back in a few days and we're going to give you your second installment of training. And then a month later, and then a month later. And so they just, they've met us where we are at and they provided the information and the resources that we need to adjust to this in our lives. And as we've been walking through this, I can't help but think of the parallel that it ought to be like this in the church. That people can come with their broken lives through these doors and say, where can I go to receive help? And there ought to be people that would meet them and look them in the eye and offer them a, a respectful handshake, a respectful time of listening to their story, assessing where there are, and providing the basics of it, at, at, at a minimum, sharing the gospel with them. Because that is their greatest need, to be forgiven of their sins and to have a relationship with God. And then, over a source of an intentional friendship, to provide installments of truth with them that they can apply over a period of time more and more and walk with them through what we call the Christian life. There is some parallels, is there not? between a hospital and a church. This is what we see here in James. If you've been following along in James, this is a hard-charging pastor. And he has offered some firm truths over these five chapters. He opens chapter 1 by saying, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Does that sound like a compassionate shepherd? You going through some hardships? Count that all joy. That's a good thing that you are going through. How many would say, I want to serve under that pastor? And he hasn't really let up during these five chapters throughout this book. He's been kind of in your face telling us at times to weep and to wail over our sins. But there has been a theme throughout this. And it has been that of those who are going through suffering. And it seems to me that we end this book with Pastor James by saying, let's turn this little local church into a hospital and let's meet the needs of people who are hurting. 
So with that in mind, why don't you follow along with me as we read 13 through 20 here in James 5. James asks, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. He prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and if someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Please pray with me. Fathers, we look to this church there in Jerusalem, a church comprised of men and women and boys and girls that are scattered out because of their faith in Jesus. We have seen from the opening verses of this book to the closing ones that there are people that are hurting. And that problem has not gone away. In this room this morning, there are people that are hurting physically, emotionally, spiritually. Lord, would you take these words and inform us as a local church how we are to be like a hospital and meeting and serving and helping one another along. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we have a very straightforward passage here where there is a series of questions that can serve as an outline for us. So let's look again at verse 13. The question is posed, is anyone among you suffering? And if you were here last week or if you read chapter 5 in preparation for today, you know that this church there in Jerusalem is filled with people whom are suffering. And, and we covered the first six verses two weeks ago, how there are wealthy people within this church who are taking advantage of the poor. And the poor are not getting paid for their job. And so as a result, they're just trying to scrounge around and make a living. They're not having the resources to go out and buy their families food. In verses 7 through 12, James said, Those of you who are suffering, look for examples like the Old Testament prophets, like the farmers and like Job. Look to them. See how they suffered. And then follow their lead. And then we get to verse 13 and he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Here's what you ought to do. You ought to pray. You ought to pray. Do not become paralyzed with your hard circumstances. Instead, take it to the Lord in prayer. As First Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says, Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. We see here in James 
opportunities throughout this letter where we have an opportunity to pray. We could look in the chapter 1 where, where it is posed this question, Do any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. This book opens with suffering. How am I to navigate through this suffering? Ask God to help you not to waste this opportunity to grow in Him. We could look at chapter 1, verse 13, where we learn about temptation. Help me not to fall into temptation as I go through this suffering. We could look at chapter 1, verse 21. As I'm in this suffering, help me to receive the implanted Word of God. We could look at chapter 2, where we see this favoritism. Help me not to play favorites as I go through this. We could look at, help me to bear fruit. Help me to have works that prove that I am a Christian. The last part of chapter 2. In this suffering, chapter 3, help me to speak words that will edify and encourage and bless others. Help me to seek wisdom from above rather than earthly wisdom. And when I am wronged, Help me not to lash out in anger, but help me to have self-control. James chapter 4. Or James chapter 5. The resources that you have given to me. Help me to be good stewards of them. We are to pray. When we are in suffering, you would expect James to say such a thing. We cannot manage this on our own. We need God's intervention into our life. Whether to change those circumstances... Or to change our own heart. The second question is found right after that. It says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Cheerful. Do you think for a moment that this word cheerful is one who is not in suffering? The context would suggest that this person is in the middle of suffering like everyone else. But God is doing a work in them of joy of putting a cheerfulness in them despite their circumstances. And if that's the case for you there in Church of Jerusalem or you Highland Crest, here is the biblical response. Sing. Sing praise. You might be one this morning that says, I am tone deaf. I lack the skill of singing. And I, I'm not very far. I might, I might number myself in that category myself. But would God ask you to do something that you are incapable of doing? We are commanded to sing. You, you remember in Ephesians 5, verses 18 and 19, this is this classic passage where we are instructed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit of God. What do you think the first instruction that follows that is? Let me read to you in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Listen to this. The first instructions that come after being filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. The first expression of one who's been filled with the Spirit, who is under God's control, is that they sing. Whether they can sing with talent or not, they sing. Why would that be? I think it has something to do with music 
often is intertwined with our affections or our emotions. I mean, you can be in a restaurant and you can hear a song from your childhood and it can bring back a warm, fuzzy feeling, can it not? One of the curses in my life is I was brought up during the 80s. And so that's the song selections that I have to draw from. Some really bad music. And I can be in Taco Bell and all of a sudden, oh man, my mind goes back to when I was 11 years old and I was here or there. But that is applied into our Christian life as well. God is not just concerned that you know truth. He is concerned that you delight in this truth. And one of the expressions of that is how we sing. Listen to a parallel passage from Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So as a church, we want to be a singing church because it is scriptural. We are commanded to do such a thing. But we not only sing Sunday morning, but we are to be singing throughout the week. We sing these truths back to our Lord. And even in the tough times, I think this is the, the context here of James chapter 5. Even when we are going through some suffering, we are to sing. Do you remember our Lord when He had just instituted the Lord's Supper? In Matthew 26, verse 30, it says at the conclusion of that, they sung a hymn. And then they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus knew what awaited Him. And before we go out, before I get arrested, before I get betrayed here, let's sing. And I don't know what you think about singing, but even the most manliest man here, and if that's your, you don't think you, you ought to be singing, I'm just telling you that it is scriptural to be singing. Don't miss the blessing that comes when you turn the delights of your life over to the Lord and it's expressed in how you sing, whether you can sing with skill or not. Don't miss the blessing. The third question here is found here in verse 14. The question is this, is anyone among you sick? And This passage is all about prayer, right? You might expect him to say you ought to pray Again, but that isn't what it is said here. This time, when it is sick, the word sick here means weakness, when you are weak. He says, you need to have times where you ask people to pray for you. Do you have people in your life that you could go to and say, I need you to pray for me. I'm going through a situation right now. And I lack the spiritual strength. Would you lift me up before our loving Father and pray for me? We see that expressed here in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? So if, if so, here is what you are to do. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. You'll note again, back to the nine marks, that this is not pray for the elder, this is not just the senior pastor, but there's a plurality here, call for the elders of multiple leaders within the church. I'm asking you to bring them and then have them pray over you. 
These are people that are identified as leaders. These are people that are identified as shepherds that, that care for the flock. They know the word. They, they preach the gospel and they know sound doctrine and false doctrine. It is also implied here that this person that is sick is connected to a local church. That they would actually know who the leaders are to call, to ask for help. And it's also implied here that the leaders of the church, the elders, know the sick person because there is a commitment to the local church. And then there is something that we don't see in other New Testament passages. It says here in verse 14, Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now what are we going to do with that? This is a place where we don't see parallel passages. What? Using oil for healing? Now there are three traditional views of this. The first view is that of the Catholic view. Our friends who attend a Catholic church would, would, would conclude that this oil is used to remove the remnants of sin and strengthen the soul in preparation for death. Perhaps you have a Catholic background. Or maybe you're a seeker this morning and you, you, you're familiar with something called the last rites. Someone is there in the hospital. It looks like they're going to pass away. And so a priest comes and will anoint that person with oil to, to offer a forgiveness of their sins to prepare them for death. Well, is that what this is saying? This passage isn't speaking about someone going into death. This passage is about praying for someone to be spared from death. We know that we do not receive forgiveness of sins through oil, but through the blood of Christ and putting our faith and turning from our sins to receive that. So the first is that of a Catholic view, and I'm just, I believe we can quickly dismiss that respectfully. The second is that of a medicinal view. Now when I say medicinal, I just mean medicine view. It was commonly held in the New Testament times that oil, say olive oil, we're not talking Quaker State or 10W30 or something like that, we're talking olive oil, uh, would be used for medicinal, for medicine purposes. Think with me about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember that story that Jesus told? When the Good Samaritan went to help that person that was hurting, this is what Luke chapter 10 verse 34 says. He went to him and, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him to his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. Do you see how that oil and wine and a mixture of it is used to help someone who is sick? Uh, just this morning I was reading a commentary and that was the view that they held. But I think the point of this passage is not so much if someone is sick, we need to give them an ibuprofen or an aspirin and then pray for them. I think the point of this passage is actually we need to pray for them. So I would just say I don't think it's the Catholic view. I don't think it's the medicinal view. I believe there's a symbolic view here. Because there are places in the Scriptures where one is anointed with oil in preparation to be set apart for a specific task. We see this in the Old Testament, whether it's Exodus 40 or Numbers 3, where one is about ready to be set aside for full-time ministry to serve as a priest. 
Well, here is a unique case that we see it here in James chapter 5, where one is anointed with oil to be set aside for God's special attention. So if someone is sick, they are called the leaders of their church and say, would you pray for me? Leaders are to take some oil. And here's some olive oil here. And to dip it and to anoint their head with it a little bit here. And to pray for their healing. Now, does that mean that they will be healed? I mean, is there a guarantee for this? There certainly are times where God still brings healing. But there are times where He doesn't bring healing. Can you think of places in the Scriptures where we see this? I can think of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Do you remember that passage where Paul is speaking about this thorn in the flesh? And it says there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So there are times where God will choose to heal. And there are times where God will not choose to heal us physically in order to do a greater work, show us how we can rely on His grace. So as we look at this prayer for healing, here's what we're seeing. You need to contact the leaders of your church. They need to also anoint you with oil, is what it's saying. And then we are seeing something else here. Look with me at what it says in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven. So we're seeing a third thing here for those who are praying for the sick. One, identify your leaders. Have them pray for you. Two, have them anoint with oil. The third is we're seeing there is a link between one's sin and their sickness. Now, am I saying that every time someone has a flu or every time someone needs a a hip replacement, that, that the reason for that is because of sin? That's not what we're saying here. But there's certainly a link that we see throughout the Scriptures that sometimes sickness is brought on by sin. Let me read to you Psalm 32. Uh, David here, it has sin in his life and he has not confessed it. And It says in Psalm 32 verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Are you hearing the link here? I've got sin in my life. I'm not dealing with it. And I'm feeling some physical effects of that. Then it says in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgive the iniquity of my sin. How about a New Testament example in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the context of the Lord's Supper? Paul wrote, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And he says this, That is why many of you are weak and ill and have died. There is a link in the Bible, between our sin that goes unconfessed and sickness. So, the instructions here for those who are sick, 
as they come before the elders, the elders would ask them, let me ask you a question. Is there any known sin in your life right now? It would be wise for you to do some inspection, to pray about that, because it's possible that you got sin in your life that is causing this sickness. I'm not saying that's always the case, but based on James 5, I think we can see there is some evidence of that. No, actually, as best I know, I've got a clear conscience before the Lord. Okay, let us pray for you then. We're going to pray for you right now. So there is the third question, and that is, is anyone sick? Ask for prayer. Now, one other, there's, four, there's a fourth question, and there's five. The fourth question is this. Is there an example of prayer? And the answer to that is yes. His name is Elijah. Look with me at the last part of verse 16. It says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And so he's going to go back into the Old Testament and reference 1 Kings 17 and 1 Kings 18, where Elijah uh, prayed, and for three and a half years there was no rain. And then he prayed again, and it rained. And so in this context of prayer, praying for the suffering, James is saying, you remember Elijah? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that Elijah was a superhero? And that he was at a different status than you and I? Is that what it means, that he was a righteous person? And God would never answer my prayers in the same way he answered Elijah's prayers. Where do you think Elijah got this righteousness? Do you think it was based on his own efforts? Do you think it was because he woke up every morning and he had his quiet time? Do you think he he went throughout his day and he always shared the gospel? That he resisted temptation? That you could always count on him on Wednesday night? He was always there on Sunday school and Sunday morning and and in the worship service. Is this a righteousness of his own? Or do you think it was the same for Elijah as it is you and I? That this is a righteousness that was granted to him as a gift by faith. So I think there's possible this morning that there are people within this room that say, I don't believe God would ever answer my prayer because I don't have a righteous life. I, I've, I didn't read my Bible all days this week. I missed an opportunity to share the gospel. God wouldn't answer my prayer. Your prayer being answered is not based on your righteousness. Praise be to God. But it is on the righteousness of Christ that was granted to you when you repented of your sins and believed in Christ to save you. That's why I think we see it here in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Be encouraged, loved ones. He had the same nature as you did. Remember, he got depressed. He got discouraged. It was the righteousness that was granted to him. Based on this, he could pray. And he didn't pray a lazy prayer, according to verse 17. He prayed fervently. And there's a good question for us this morning. Do you pray fervently? Or do you just kind of mumble a prayer? 
Has God brought you to a place of desperation where you realize the only way that your circumstances are going to change or your heart is going to change is if God intervenes. And as a result, you cry out, oh, God, help me. Please, I need you to intervene here in my family, in my work. I need you to step in and change my heart towards the situation. Does that characterize the fervency of your prayer? This is what we see here in Elijah. And he prayed in accordance with what God wanted him to pray. God was doing a work with this famine, of this dry time. So he prayed what God wanted him to. 1 John 5, verse 14 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So I'd ask you, loved ones, when you pray, are you informed by what God's will is here in the Scriptures? Because when we read the Scriptures, then we understand what we ought to be praying for. You cannot separate the two. So we pray, God, give me an opportunity, please, to share the Gospel. Do you think he'd answer that prayer? God, please allow me to disciple someone. Do you think he would answer that prayer? God, I'm, I have a heart for my husband. I have a heart for my grandchildren. I want them to walk in your way. God, please, he will hear that prayer. God, here are the resources. I have more than what I could spend. Would you please help me to be wise with these resources that you have granted to me? I believe God would answer that prayer. And then finally, the last question here is, has anyone wandered away? Look with me in verses 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, it's implied here that what was going on in the church of Jerusalem still goes on today. Is that people attend a local church for a while and then they wander away. But they don't wander away from the local church. You see what it says there. They wander away from the truth. And that's much more dangerous. And he says here, you've wandered away from the truth and someone brings him back. Verse 20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What he is saying, I believe here, is that there are people within the church that met attend for a while, but they wander away from the truth because they were never really about the truth. And if you will go out and God would enable you to share the truth with them and they come back, you are a part of saving their soul. And it says here, it will cover a multitude of sins that will spare them from all sorts of harmful things that will happen as a result of their sins, whether in eternity or whether in this lifetime. So Pastor James is saying to the church there in Jerusalem, you've got to care for one another. You've got to pray. You've got to sing. You've got to do this together. If I could just be honest with you for a little while here. Hopefully I'm honest with you the whole time. Um, I've said, let's, let's make 2019, let's, let's make that a year of prayer. And let's evaluate what we're doing here at our church. And so there's been a, a group of men that have been meeting in the early mornings for months. And now there's a group of men that are meeting in early mornings, and we're just doing a, an assessment of our church. And I think I'm, I'm fair to say this, that this idea of a hospital and us ministering to people, 
there certainly is some of that going on. But I believe there's an area here where we can, we can do better than what we are. And we want to be better than what we are right now. Now some of that is organic, right? We need to preach the Word, and I'm just going to trust that you're going to apply it. But the reality is, is that we lead extremely busy lives, and you could get into that car and, and you could forget the Word that has been planted in your heart. So church not only wants to be organic, but then also needs to consider its structure. and How can it help in these areas? And one of the things that, that I spoke about a year ago or nine months ago or whatever it was, is, is looking at small group ministry. I mean, Bible studies that actually meet in people's homes where you could take the message that has been preached on Sunday or some other Bible study and read it and discuss it with one another in an unhurried way. And then you could break up and the guys could go over here and pray for one another's burdens. The girls could go over here and they could pray for one another's burdens. And, and if I could just extend that metaphor of the hospital, we could actually have little clinics that are meeting throughout our, our county, throughout our city, where we're actually serving one another and ministering to one another. So we're looking at that. In fact, over the last couple of Sunday evenings, people have met in our home, and this is what we're talking about. We're praying through this. What would we want the DNA of our church of these small groups to look like? What, what, is, what is necessary to, to be contained within that small group where we can minister, we can be the hospital to one another, and if there's greater needs that come up, that those conversations come, come back to the leadership and let's, let's help those people that are discussing this in their, in their small groups. If the Lord wills, in January, we'll be able to offer a few of these small groups that meet in people's homes. Now, it's our hope that we will have quality with a very intentional DNA placed in every one of these small groups, rather than just putting up a banner and saying, let's just launch 20 of these and let's spread it really wide but not have any depth. But to have them in semesters where you have a January to May and then September to, to December and have some intentionality how it could multiply. So start with quality and then grow. And, and it's not to get rid of Sunday school, but to keep Sunday school as it is. But there are certain people that say, I've given Sunday school a try. I'd like, I'd like this small group form, and I want to give this a shot. And to say, would you choose either a Sunday school class or a home, a home study? N- initially, we're going to need both. We're going to need people that are in Sunday school to help us launch these. But I want to keep you aware of that. We want to be the church that ministers to people. So where do we go from here as we, as we conclude this service this morning? As I've prayed about this, I think this text just naturally leads us into a time of prayer. We want to be ministering to one another. So instead of us having a song and then being dismissed, here's what I'd like us to do. Could we just be open to praying with one another? Let's have a morning here where we're just serving one another and we're praying with one another and we're being the hospital to one another. So if there's people right around you as a family you want to pray for a need, perhaps there is a wanderer in your family that has left the faith, left the church. You say, that would be worthy. Would you pray for me? Pray for our family. Let's pray. Father, may you take this time right now. I know this is different and I know it's unusual. 
But I pray that as a church family, we would just apply James 5 right now and help us to minister to one another. Help us to pray with one another. Help us to humble ourselves and say, would you pray for me? I need God's intervention in my life. In Jesus' name, amen.